I have a, I have a bit of a confession. I, I didn't go to the Azusa thing, so I know I've been, I have been pushing it so hard for, I don't know, months, and I, I, I didn't go. Um, I know, I'm bad, huh? I have, a, I have a bit of a cold, and I had a very stressful week in Kauai, so I just didn't go, but, um, but I, uh, I watched it on, online live stream, which was great, and um, I think my favorite part of the rally, uh, well, my favorite part was just seeing thousands and thousands of young people just praising God, and, you know, you get to watch it on TV, and here's the sad part that I kind of made me a little bummed out, because I know that, that you cannot experience the presence of God on a screen like you can when you're in corporate worship setting. It's, it's, it's impossible to do. So I was kind of like, oh man, I should have sucked it up and went. But um, I, probably, I probably would have bumped the service to dad this morning. So it's, but anyway, uh, that, but I love that. But my, my other favorite part was, was hearing uh, Lauren Cunningham uh, speak. Uh, he is the director, president, for a very long time with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, his dad's friend as well. And he, um, well, I mean, this Azusa now is a big uh, prayer movement rally. So there was lots of praying going on and sometimes lots of very loud praying going on um, and probably warranted loud praying going on. But uh, Cunningham really brought it down to a very natural, practical level. And he said, revival and renewal that lasts, you are going to have a balance of the word and the spirit. And so his, his call to all of these young folks and everybody that's so amped up and excited about what Jesus is doing, his commission was, you need to know the scriptures. And when you have a balance of the scriptures, the, the written word of God, and that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, it is, it's an unstoppable force. And that is where we'll get true longevity and revival. And I do believe that this was a, this was a tilting point uh, for our for Southern California, quite possibly the nation, quite possibly the, the the world, we can maybe we are looking at another great awakening in our country. This could have done it. I actually believe that it has, but we've got to we've got to have this desire to get into the scriptures. And so, again, that's why I'm excited about um, 66 weeks in the Bible. So I had this thought as I was kind of like sitting here. Um, would you like to get a prize if you actually sit through 66 sermons? <laughs> huh? Would you like a prize? All right, here we go. How, how, I, I probably should have talked to the board about this or something. But here's your prize. Like you, so next week, we're starting the series. We're starting on Genesis. I'm going to do part one, first service, part two, second service. You don't have to sit through both. But if you want to, you can, or you could watch it later. Uh, and then if I feel, I don't know, if it's just like too loose, uh, we'll pick some of it up on Wednesday night. Uh, I don't know, in my office or something. And, um, but, it, but that's going to be week one. And if you make all 66 weeks you'll enter a drawing to go to Israel. What do you think about that? Huh? All right. You want to do that? All right, we'll do that. All right. So we'll, we'll figure it out. Things I probably should not talk about when I'm just sitting in the moment. But anyway, that, that's what we'll do. All right? That sound like fun? 66 weeks. It's going to be about two years to do. So we'll, we'll make it happen. All right. Um, you have to fill out your connection card. That's the only way that you've got to do it. So uh, next week, if you do not fill out your connection card, we will, we will not have a record that you were here on Sunday. It also helps if you give lots of money. Okay. Um, <clears throat> do you know what time it is? You know what time it is? Story. It's story time. All right. This one's from a guy this time. We had lots of great stories from gals. And I have been waiting for this story for a very long time. And it's from one of my dear friends, and I'm excited to tell it. Growing up in Idaho, there's a testimony right there, right? 
Uh, growing up in Idaho, mom took us to church every Sunday morning and night. And Wednesdays, she took us to youth group. Mom led the choir, so we also were involved in that as well. I learned at an early age, at the early age of seven, the value of money. And I started my own business selling worms to the gas station next to the Snake River. Shortly after that, the fishermen learned that I was the one that was selling the worms to the gas station. So we eliminated the middleman. I had the fishermen buy me a small refrigerator and I kept it outside of our house so that they could buy the worms straight from me. At the age of 11, my parents moved us, me and my three brothers, to California for a better life. Mom took us to Central Baptist Church on Mills Avenue. It was there that I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I was 12 years old. Isn't that amazing? I also started a lawn mowing business, and I had my older brother work for me. As you can see, making money was something that I learned early in life. Like so many other young men, as soon as I turned 16, I got my driver's license. I decided that uh, work was more important than church. My mom didn't like this, but I said, well, if dad didn't have to go to church, then why do I? Ouch. I started working for Fred Saunders Fine Foods when Montclair Plaza first opened. I was promoted to assistant manager in no time. Now, it turned out that the manager, my boss, was a drug dealer. I learned he was selling to many of the same people that I knew, and the manager started fronting me or supplying me with drugs, which I would sell, and then I would pay him what I owed him, and I would keep the rest, which was pure profit. This went on for years. And as I got older, my customers started asking for other drugs, and I would supply them as they requested. I turned into a full-blown drug dealer. I justified it by telling myself that I was just getting them what they wanted. And if they did not get the drugs from me, that they would get them from somebody else. I just saw myself as a commodities broker. So why not? Why not make some money on what they wanted anyway? And plus, it was the 60s and the 70s, and that's just the way things were back then. Now, I was not addicted to the drugs. I sold. I was not addicted to the drugs that I sold, but I was addicted to the money I was making. At the age of 17, I was able to get my own apartment, and I was able to pay six months in advance. By the age of 18, I bought my first house. I always had other jobs to make it look like I had a legal living. But selling drugs was just a hobby that I just happened to make a lot of money at. I started getting into larger and larger volumes, and I and quickly became the go-to person. It was supply and demand, and I was the big guy. God and church became further and further away. I knew God never left me, but he sure did take his hand off of me. Like so, like so many, I told myself, I could control my life better than letting someone else control it for me, including God. My dealing days went on for many years. I was known to both family and friends to take off on a trip to Europe or some other place at a moment's notice. Many times it was, it was uh, <clears throat> excuse me, many times it was uh, to find the best deal on drugs. I made sure I never carried the product on me, though. 
I always make, I always make sure I paid someone else to secure the product. This lifestyle went on for many years. I acquired many material things. Cars, houses, motorcycles, all just things. Things that in the long run, they really did not matter. Well, like most things that are too good to be true, I became someone that the DEA was looking at. If not at me, at least they were looking at how the drugs were getting into this country and into this area. I was subsequently involved in a sting operation. A close friend who I'd paid to carry large amounts of product, or cocaine, uh, hand-delivered it to a DEA agent. We had driven up north to deliver the, to the, the cocaine to a buyer. I normally would not have been the person delivering the product, but I didn't totally trust the buyer. And so I had to make sure to secure the deal. Well, the time, well the, at the same time, the DEA raided the courier's room. They also busted into my room, and they arrested me. I spent time in jail, charged with conspiracy to deliver a controlled substance and interstate transport. Bail was set at $5 million. With me looking at five to 40 years of imprisonment, the DEA also seized all of my assets, calling them straw purchases, meaning that if I could not prove where the money came from, they considered it drug proceeds. The only thing that I was able to keep was my house in Pomona, which I purchased when I was just out of high school, and I proved to have a job. In order to get out of jail, my lawyer got bail reduced, and my house and my brother's house was put up. I also was ordered to surrender my passports because they considered me a flight risk because I'd visited 13 different countries. Also, while on bail, I had to submit to drug testing. My lawyer thought that it would be a good idea to turn in a couple of dirty tests to appear to be a drug user instead of a drug dealer. Now, that backfired on me. The court ordered my bail bond revoked and required me to report to a drug and alcohol rehab facility in San Francisco the Newbridge Foundation. I was there for six grueling months, and I would have enjoyed jail a lot better. The rehab place was attack therapy. Someone was in my face daily, and I had to take it because I was risking 40 years of imprisonment. The whole time there, my trial was also going on. I was taken to court daily. I was finally convicted of misprison of felony, which meant at one time in my life, I had talked about drugs over the phone. I was sentenced to three and a half years of federal prison. In the plea bargain, I asked to be sent uh, to a prison close to home. I was sent to Boron Federal Prison in Boron, California. Like so many in prison, I found Jesus there also. In some ways, I think, it was, <clears throat> I think it was able to get me out of my cell, but we all knew that God uses every moment in our lives to reach us. You could say I was, they had a captive audience. I went to Bible studies and church services, and I vowed never to deal drugs again. Well, fast forward six months later. Part of my release deal was I had to live in a halfway house in the beautiful downtown area of Rubidoux. So for six months, I learned to get out of that place, and I went to church as often as I could. And sometimes I went two times a day just to get out of that house. God all the, God all the time using to, this to teach me more of his word. Once out of the... Once out of the halfway house, I was free, so I went back to normal life. Once I got out, I went back to bartending. Uh, I did keep my vow never to deal illegal drugs again, but I didn't keep going to church. I didn't have time. 
I was busy trying to get back to a normal life. That went on for 12 years. And God allowed me to do things my way. I know he wanted me back close to him, but he will not force us to do anything that we do not want to do. He gives us free will. Again, fast forward. August 14th, 2002. I drove two blocks from my house to Rite Aid to get some ice cream. For real, to get some ice cream. Went into the store as normal. When I walked out, I got into my car. As I was told, because I thank God I don't remember exactly what happened, I was attacked by two men who brutally beat me with hammers, leaving me for dead. I was somehow able to drive myself two blocks home with blood gushing from my head. Thankfully, my neighbors saw me driving so slow that they were concerned because I usually drive really fast. They called the paramedics and the police. They were able to bandage me up, and I was coherent enough to tell them that I don't want to go to the hospital. By God's grace, he sent a police officer that, I knew, that knew me, and he stayed with me trying to get me to go to the hospital. Apparently, they, they tried to get the chief of police to mandate that I be taken to the hospital, but no deal. And he waited there with me until I became incoherent. I apparently went into a coma at that point, and they rushed me to the hospital. That is what I call God's protection. The emergency room doctors called my family and told me that I had been beaten so badly that they did not expect me to come out of the coma. And if I did come out, they did not expect me to walk or talk or function ever again. They said to pray that I would die. Well, my family and their friends, they did not pray that way. They put me on every prayer chain possible. I was told that I was on prayer chains from California to New York to all over the world. While they were all praying, I was busy talking to God while in a coma. We talked about my life and what it was like and what it could be. I rededicated my life to the Lord while in a coma. Some of the things I do remember in those five days in a coma was seeing light, bright, bright lights, and the person that I was talking to in those bright lights. I told God if he let me live through this, I would do anything and everything that he asked of me. I asked him to forgive me for all of the things that I had done in my life. Well, after five days, I woke up out of the coma, and the doctors were baffled that I was awake. They thought that they should proceed cautiously, but when I tried to pull out the tubes out of my mouth and I tried to talk, they took everything off. I not only was able to talk, I was able to tell them that I wanted out. So four days later, I was out of the hospital, walking and talking. I was not out of the woods yet, but I was alive. And to this day, all the doctors said that it was a miracle that I had lived. August 23rd, I walked out of the hospital. At the end of September, I was in La Puente, attempting to buy an engine for a car. Not drugs, an engine. Yeah. I was in La Puente, attempting to buy an engine for a car. When in walks a guy who introduces himself and says he was sent to talk with a guy named Gary. I told him that I was Gary. He told me that he was prompted to come in and to invite me to his church in Claremont. Okay, let me stop here for a second. Let me make sure you understand what's going on. A member of our, of our church is prompted 
by the Holy Spirit to go into this shop and to talk to a guy named Gary. Do you understand? It's called a word of knowledge. It's called a divine appointment. And if we were able to function on that level, we would not need a website. We would not need, we would not need promotional cards. We wouldn't have to spend any money on our budget for advertising if everybody was able to function like this. So you understand what was going on? All right. I told him that I was Gary. He told me that he was prompted to come in and to invite me to his church in Claremont. I told him that I happened to live in Pomona and that I was looking for a church. So I agreed to meet him there the next day. The church turned out to be Granite Creek Community Church. The guy's name was George, and he met me outside, walked me in, and introduced me to another guy named Kenny. And lo and behold, that Kenny guy was a friend of mine from high school, and our families grew up together. And he was also a customer of mine from the good old days when I was a drug dealer. And his first question for me was, what on earth are you doing here? That's probably censored. I don't know for sure. But he says, what on earth are you doing here? I told him I'm seeking the Lord, the same thing that you're doing here. I sat with George during the service and I knew that I'd love this place. That day I stayed and I talked with Kenny for like an hour and he told me what he'd been doing with his life, what God had done saving him, the work that he had he'd picked up at the homeless with the homeless in the food bank. I knew from that talk that I had a mentor, someone I could be able to go to for guidance, for encouragement and help. He talked about a Bible study and he encouraged me to get involved. I was also able to meet with him the next week and we talked about life. We talked about what we had both have gone through because it was similar. He invited me to join him for the Spirit Riders for Christ. It was a motorcycle club that the church had at the time. And little did I know that Kenny would not be around for much longer and he went to be with the Lord. I now know that God had his hand in my life and he protected me from myself throughout the years. He also taught me how to feed myself and not to depend on someone else to feed me. Meaning to study his word, to study the scriptures, to ruminate on it, to ingest God's word. While I was in a broken state, God showed up and he showed me who he was, and I was reading his word, while I was reading his word. God has called me now to speak to the lost and the lonely and discarded people of this world. I come to church to have fellowship with others and to serve where he sees fit, and I owe my entire life to him. Amen. All right, yeah, let's give a hand to that one. That was good, huh? All right, get your Bibles out. We're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 12. And the parable that I picked is the parable of the rich fool. Starts uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. But before I read the parable, I, gotta, I have to... I have to get to the point before Jesus starts his story. Because it's not only is it important to get it in the context, it's also really funny. And so you, you got to hear the whole thing. Uh, Jesus is just, uh, he's just got off of this issue of dealing with the Pharisees, as usual. He's dealing with religious people. He's dealing with legalism. And he's telling them that it's not how you look on the outside. It's what's going on in the inside. Don't, don't clean the outside of the cup. You need to clean the inside of the cup. 
That's where healing takes place. Everybody was starting to congregate around Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak to his disciples first, saying, Be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or anything hidden that will not be made known. And what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those that can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who will, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are, we not, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before the Son of Man will also be acknowledged before angels, the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when you are brought before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. There is a lot going on here. It's like Jesus is answering all the, the big, giant, major questions in life. How do you become saved? How do you function in the Holy Spirit? There's like a lot of really big, meaty stuff going on. Like everybody should be taking notes. Like when, when Jesus was saying this stuff, there's crowds of people and everybody's trampling on everybody. Everybody should be hanging on every word. Now this is where it gets funny. Okay, pay attention to the next words, okay? Here we go. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, do you, do you see why that's funny? Do you, do you see why this is funny? It's like, Jesus is telling them the meaning of life. And then some knucklehead in the crowd is whining about money. Does that make sense? Do you understand? Like God gives us so much life. He gives us the meanings of life. And we spend 90% of our time worrying about what? Money. Making it. Jesus replied, dude, what's the matter with you? Like, it's like Jesus is up there. He's like got the nervous twitch in his eye. It's like, oh my gosh, really? He says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator between you? Why am I, really? You really want me to get involved in this squabble for you? You want me to take your side because somehow you feel that you've been wronged in this situation? Really? I'm telling you the meaning of life, and you want me to get involved in this family squabble. Oh, my gosh. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I'm making lots of money. I have, the banks aren't big enough to store all my money. I need another tower. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, 
this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my mini barns and I will build bigger ones. I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. We've heard of this before, right? Uh, isn't it cool that like all of these really fancy sayings that our culture produces, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die? Jesus said them. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then you will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or about your body or what you will wear, life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. You consider the ravens. They do not sow. They do not reap. They have no storeroom. They don't have a barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? We've got to get this concept into our heads. Like, worrying, did you come in worrying? It's okay if you did. We all do this. But did you come into church worrying? Like, I have seen people in church, and it was probably you. Yeah, you're right. Is Pastor Josh thinking about me? Yes, I am. Um, I've seen people come into church, and they are so consumed by worry and fear and insecurity and doubt, and they just got this, they're, they're trapped in this circular thinking. Worry, 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 doubt, 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 and they can't get out. I have seen people sit in an hour-long service, it, that's sometimes how long they go, right? Um, and they never break out of that cycle. And because they've worried so much, they don't even hear God's word. It's really a tragic thing. And it doesn't do you any good. I, uh, a few weeks ago, I actually, <laughs> I don't know if this is, I, I don't know if this is probably the, the right thing to do or not, but I did it. Like, this guy uh, grabbed me, and he was so consumed about what he was worrying about that he could not worship. Hmm? It was impossible for him to actually worship and sing. And I, had, and I grabbed him, and I said, stop it. Stop it right now. Stop it. You need to take your attention away from what you're worrying about and you need to put it on God in his presence. Because it's not going to, the worrying is not going to do you any good in this house. You know what's going to do you good in the house? Is when you worship. What's, what's the opposite of worry? It's worship. And that's where life takes place. I don't know. So what is it? Is it um, worry? Worry is the opposite of prayer. Sometimes we approach God in an area of worry, and the whole goal of prayer is to, to shift our worry from fear and into praise, into, 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 into life. Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about all the rest? You consider the lilies and how they grow. They do not labor or spin. I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like any of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is there today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, 
And do not set your hearts on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagans, for the pagan world, they run after such things. And your father, who knows what you need, excuse me, and your father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? But I want the father to give me lots of money. Oh, no, you don't. You want the father to give you his kingdom. You seek first his kingdom and everything else will be added unto us. All right, there's a couple of points from the story. A couple of points that, that we need to look at from, from this powerful testimony. Uh, why do you think I picked the parable of the foolish um, man? It's because the issue was money. Because Gary was not addicted to drugs. He was addicted to mammon. The Bible says that you can't serve both God and mammon or God and money. Now, money in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. We've got to have it. It's, you know, it's what we use to, to, to live life, right? But what we don't understand is that behind the money... There's a spiritual dimension. There's a spiritual force. Mankind has always sought after gold. We have a lust for gold. We have a desire for digits. You know, dollar bills, it's no different than a gold bar. It's no different than adding numbers to your bank account. And it almost seems like a silly thing when you think about it just being pure numbers, right? Or an object. But there's a demonic force that wants to control it and wants to control it in our lives. And the beautiful thing about this story is that there was victory behind it, Right? We can completely dedicate our lives. We can be completely consumed with the things that we want, the material things that we want. Whether mammon manifests itself in uh, how many digits we have in our bank account or whether it, it manifests itself into boats, houses, cars, women, supermodels that we marry, right? It, that's all a manifestation of this demonic spirit that's behind money. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't know when you're going to die. You have no idea when your life will be demanded from you. How do you, oh, this, is so, this is so difficult for us, isn't it? Because we're all concerned about our mortality. No one wants to die, or at least I don't. You know, sometimes like, oh man, this life stinks. I wish I wasn't here. We all have those feelings. But all of us, we, we don't want to see our own death. And what Jesus is saying, that's just a harsh reality. Um, actually, we're doing pretty good right now. But last year, like our church buried somebody almost every week. That's life. Gary's mentor, Kenny, was taken, but well, it was God's timing, I guess. It's kind of hard to, to make those types of calls. But he died a young man. It was tragic. He got on his motorcycle. He was hit by a 
by a truck, killed instantly. Why, that's, how, do you, how do you process this? It was Gary's mentor. It was Gary. I mean, he had a place and he was serving in God's kingdom. But for some reason, his life was demanded from him. Whether it was God's will or not, we don't know. But his life was demanded at him at that moment. Here's the amazing thing about Kenny is that uh, where was his treasures stored? The rest of the verse says, do not store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. And where your, 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 your purse, your bank account, it ought to be a divine one. You ought to have a supernatural purse. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so when Kenny was hit by the Mack truck, he has treasures in heaven. Amazing. I was like, wow. I hope I don't die right now because I think Kenny's going to have a better house than I will. What's amazing about this story there's the power of the seed. The seed of prayer. The beginning of Gary's story. How did it start? Who did it start with? It started with mom. And what did mom do? Mom drug him to church. Twice on Sunday, once during the week, and whenever the doors opened up for choir practice, guess who was in church? Kicking and screaming. It was built in. Guess what else mom did? Prayed like nobody's business. Look, I don't really, I don't know if I can actually support this, but I believe that it's true. Within my heart of hearts, I believe that it is true because Gary had. A mom that fought for him in the spiritual realms. That when that day came, when his life was demanded from him, when he got beat to death with hammers, he had a second chance. Look, second chances are very few and far between. And he had that... um, he had that near-death experience where they're all the same, right? It's that, it's that white light, and it's that bright, bright light, and he's conversing with somebody in the light, and he rededicates his life while in a coma. For, for the only reason why he's not dead, it was because he's hooked up to a machine. So naturally, he was dead, And he has a second chance at life, even on the day that his life was demanded from him. And this is what I believe. I believe he got that second chance because he had a mother that sowed spiritual seed into his heart. Does that make sense? I believe that with all my heart. I believe that because, there were, because people were praying for him. Like he got put on the worldwide web of prayer chains. There is power in prayer. It, prayer does change things. We do know from the scriptures, and as we will get into it, you can change God's mind through prayer. We see Moses do it. We see Abraham do it. We see the disciples do it. They petition God. And when, when his life was demanded from him, people prayed. They says, you know what? No, 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 no. Because we know what his life could have been. His life was this way, but God had a different plan for what his life could have been. So let's give him a second chance, God. Do not take his life now. Because there's so much more that he can do. There's the power of the seed. There's that power of prayer. We're all responsible for it. We all can do it. Second point, there's the power of the word. It's the power of the seed, and then there's the power of the word. 
I don't know if you saw that, that consistent theme that was in this story. Because, um, you know, in those, in those dry points, like even, you know, it's like, like our spiritual lives can be like this, right? Life's bad, so I connect to God. I get put in jail, so uh, I got to get out of my cell, so I'm going to go to church, right? Uh, I've lost my job. I'm depressed. I'm bummed out. I'm going to go to church. We do this. Um, It's opportunity that God uses to get us into his word or to get us into the scriptures. That's why the next series is going to be so important because it's, um, it's almost as if you begin, to, you begin to read it and you begin to ingest the scriptures. It's almost as it becomes, you get it by osmosis. You get God's word inside of you and it changes who you are. When you begin to think about these things, when you meditate on these things, when you sing spiritual songs in the shower, it changes who you are. And the word transforms us. Maybe slowly, sometimes rapidly, but it transforms us. And here's the other thing that we've got to get about the word, about the word, about getting into the word. You know how I feel about that, right? Because it's annoying to me sometimes when people say, well, you just got to get into the word. I, yeah, I totally get that. I'm on board 100%. I love the Bible. I read it all the time. Um, but here's the thing. If the word is Jesus. The, the word is about him. And the word is living. And it's active. And it's breathing. And it, it changes people's lives because a guy, a, George, is just a regular dude. George was not a pastor. George was a blue-collar worker. George had a work ethic, and he's a shy, quiet introvert. George who God pulls over at the side of the road and says, I have an assignment for you to go into this motor shop and to find Gary. That's the word of God. You understand what I'm saying? Because the word of God is not confined to the Bibles that are stuck in the pew or the Bible that's sitting on your bookshelf. The word of God is living and active and it's not bound between two covers. It wants to get out and it wants to flow through your mouth and it wants to touch other people's lives. Could you imagine if George was not obedient, right? Sometimes we just think that obedience is just moral behavior, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we think that, that being obedient is just relegated to being good when actually being obedient means that you do things that God tells you to do that feel uncomfortable because he's leading you and he's prompting you to act because the world is at stake and people's lives are at stake. Does that make sense? It's the power of the word. And lastly, and I know this is so important for him, and it's important for our church culture, that we have to get this way, because his mentor was taken from him at a short time, and he had a choice. He had a really important choice. When, when you lose your mentor, when your teacher's lost, when your guru's gone, you've got a choice. Well, I guess God doesn't love me anymore. Yep, there it is. Yep. I, see, God let me down again. Uh, I'm going to go get drunk and pick up hookers. Right? <laughs> oh, the word of God didn't come through for me, so I'm going to live like... We use it as an excuse. And it comes a time in everybody's life when you're going to be responsible for your own spiritual growth. Someday your mentor... Well, hopefully your mentor won't get hit by a truck. But someday your mentor is going to be taken out of your life and you're going to learn. You have to get this, folks. You're going to learn. You've got to learn how to self-feed. You have to. We, 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 can't, we can't feed you all the time. You've got to pick up the book yourself. You've got to self-feed. You've got to... You, you uh, you got to find music, worship music that you like, and you have to enter into worship on your own, in your car, in your kitchen, in the shower. It's got to be a lifestyle. You've got to be able to not only just go to the class, 
go to the conference, but actually be that conduit to share God's word to everybody. You've got to feed yourself. Our job as pastors and George's job as a divine appointment person is to point and to lead people to Jesus, not to feed you. Does that make sense? We'll give you good food. We'll give you milk. We'll give you meat. But at some point in your life, you've got to pick up the fork and your knife and learn how to cut it yourself. All right, if I could have the band and the ushers come to the front. Oh, man. All right, if I could have the ushers and the band to run up to the front. <laughs> oh. Let's pray. We got to pray. If we're not praying, everything else is just words. If we're not engaging in the Holy Spirit, then God can't do anything with us. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'll come and you just begin to do a powerful work in us. I pray right now that we will not fall victim to that spirit of materialism, even though it seems like our whole culture is based on it. God, right now, I pray that you would just forgive us. We repent for this sin of materialism and we, we repent of this a desire to, to accumulate more and more and more. And, and that, that, that very saying, the words out of Jesus' mouth that says, watch out for this one thing, that, that point that annoyed him the most when he was giving the words of life to his disciples and to, to the masses. He says, watch out, because obviously this area of greed is the one thing that's getting to you. God, I pray right now that we will just repent of that, that we will give it over to you, that we know that you're living and active and that, we, that you've come to save us. That yet while we were yet sinners, you moved on us. While we were enemies with God, that you reconciled us to your, to, to your son and to the work that he did on the cross. And I pray right now that we will receive that goodness, that you move towards us before we move towards you. I pray right now that you bless this offering in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.